Now what we're going to do today is just to get our thoughts going, we're going to drop back to Ephesians chapter 4 and pick up with uh, verse 11 because it ties into what we're looking at uh, today. Remember that we're in that block of material in Ephesians that's emphasizing the ethical and moral behavior that are important to maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's the thought that we've been uh, looking at as we work through. We so live our lives that we bring glory to God through Christ and, and through the church. And in that, then, we are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so we'll pick up with this thought that God had given gifts to the church. Look at verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We talked a little about that last week, that uh, the faith that he's talking about here is not a, a list of doctrinal issues. Right? The issue that they were facing basically is faith in Jesus, because you can remember most of these people, possibly all of these people in Ephesus and the surrounding area, had been converted out of a Gentile background. And you remember we talked about the city of Ephesus, large city, magnificent city, wonderful temple up on the hill, seaport, and all of the problems that were attached to the temple of Artemis and being a seaport and the largest brothel in the ancient world, all there in the center of Ephesus. So these people had come from that kind of a background. That was their background, what they were used to. And so now Paul is emphasizing the fact that in Christianity we don't have the freedom to choose any kind of religion in this sense. It's not a matter where you could worship that God or you can worship that God or you can worship that God, whichever gods that we're out there to choose from, that in Christianity it's faith in Jesus. That's the important thing, the center and the heart of the Christian faith. And so when he says that we come to the unity of the faith, that's what he's talking about. We all come to understand what is at the very heart of our religion and that is faith in Jesus Christ. So bear that in mind as we work through there. But notice he recognizes that not everyone is going to have that kind of faith, that it's a matter of growing slowly sometimes. On Sunday morning uh, in our Bible class in Luke, we looked at two parables there that uh, Jesus taught that emphasized that. The one was the parable of the mustard seed, how you plant that little bitty seed in the ground and slowly it grows into a bush, it grows into a tree and eventually the birds make nests in that tree. But you all know that that doesn't happen overnight. You plant the seed in the ground and slowly it matures into the tree. And that's what Jesus said, the kingdom is like that. You plant that seed in the ground, in your heart and slowly it matures in your life. Sometimes it matures for some people faster than others because they possibly didn't have as much to change. Their background hadn't been that different. 
But for, for some people, it's a radical change in their life. And then there was that other parable that Jesus taught about the, the leaven, that you put the leaven in the flour and whatever else you throw into it and let it mature. And you all know that if you hurry that process up, guess what? It doesn't work. Uh, I, I mentioned in my class on Sunday that occasionally, get me this right, occasionally, I decide I want to do some baking. And I, I, I get, you know, confused sometimes. I think it would be good if I baked a loaf of bread, okay? And so I get all of that stuff together. June usually tells me what it is. Or I get on the internet and get a recipe there, put it all together. And you know what? You ladies know all about this. You've got to knead it and get it there. And you put it on the side uh, where it's a little warm. And slowly, the leaven, the yeast, matures in the loaf. But you've got to give it time. I get impatient. And before I should, I put that loaf in the oven and bake it for the appropriate time at the right temperature. And it comes out and it's like a brick. It's not a loaf. And the reason being, why? I didn't give it time. And that's what Jesus says. The kingdom is like that. You've got to give it time. And Paul is picking up on that very same thought here in Ephesians, that we grow and mature in the faith. It doesn't, it's not something that happens overnight. So let's pick up on that thought there. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith, which is faith in Jesus, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mentioned to you last week that that word fullness is also a fascinating word. Uh, it's found especially in Paul's writings, but sometimes in John. <coughs> and it doesn't just refer to the fullness of God or the fullness of Christ. Uh, it refers to the glory of God. The fullness of Christ is represented in the glory of God. And so we grow slowly to where we in our lives manifest the glory of God. And people can hopefully see in us how we have matured and how we have changed and they realize something's going on there. Well, transport yourself back to Ephesus in that world there. Um, where, you know, to become a Christian was a radical change. And uh, people would expect to see something different in people who were Christians. And so that's what Paul is picking up on that there. But look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. We talked about this early on in our study, that one of the problems that was permeating the ancient world at that particular time, especially Asia Minor, was what we called Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, which is a theory of knowledge. And the emphasis of that was you're saved by having the right knowledge. Not everybody had the right knowledge. Not everybody got the right knowledge. It was a mysterious thing that sort of all of a sudden overtook you and then you had you were enlightened then by this mysterious knowledge. Well, John comes onto the scene a little later on and he says, you need to know that Jesus is the light of the world that enlightens the world. And so the right kind of knowledge that enlightens the world is the knowledge of Jesus. Not this special kind of knowledge that no one could define at all, you see. So that's what he's emphasizing here, says, when, that we are no longer like children. 
with all kinds of false doctrines floating around, but because we have grown and our faith is focused in Jesus, that's the important thing. You know, sometimes uh, we sort of get off the track a little bit, uh, and we think that the church is the center of our faith. Now, I don't want to play, downplay the importance of the church. It is important. How do I know the church is important? Jesus died for the church. And so that should tell us that if Jesus died for the church, it should be important in our lives. But as important as the church is, it is not the center of our faith. Okay? Because we're not focused in our faith on what's going on here in this congregation or whatever way you want to look at. Now, certainly that's important. That's why we have Bible classes and the rest of it, so that we can be taught and we can grow. We have a preacher that teaches us. So church is important, but it's not the center. And knowledge of Scripture is important, but it is not the center. All right. Now, coming from a Bible professor, that's almost heresy, isn't it? Uh, that uh, knowledge of Scripture is not important. But, you see, knowledge of Scripture points you to what? Or to whom? To Jesus. You see, that's the role of Scripture, is to get us to where our faith is focused in the right place. But you can see how easy it is, coming from such a diverse background, um, that it was difficult for these people to catch on to that. Uh, That it's faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus comes as a result of Teaching and learning. Drop back there to, oh, where is it? If I stop walking around, I could find it here. It's about verse 9, where he gave gifts. No, verse 11. He gave gifts that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Each of those ministries which God gave to the church are teaching ministries. That's what the apostles did. They taught. Prophets taught. Evangelists teach. Pastors and elders teach. So the teaching ministry is what God has given to the church so that we can grow up in our faith that is focused on Jesus. Notice how important a foundation he is laying here for these Christians to catch a hold of. Right? But, you know, sometimes uh, we mess up along the way. And that's okay. Because faith grows. But notice at the end of this passage here, which is so important, rather speaking the truth in love, that's verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him, that is Christ, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Can you see the ultimate goal of what Paul is talking about here is that we who are members of the church may all grow up into Christ to where we can understand the giftedness that we have and uh, each of us functioning properly builds the body up. But when one member of the body is not functioning properly, what does it do to the body? It makes it weaker. It It slows it down, doesn't function as effectively as it should. 
Back in 1963, long before Forrest Gump was ever uh, in, you know, invented, I started running on the road every day. I would run on the road five miles every day. And I did that for 35 years, five miles every day for 35 years. Now calculate that. I calculated at one time that I'd run around the circumference of the earth twice, which when you think about it, it's just plain stupidity. You know, but nevertheless, that's what we do sometimes. One time I was training for getting ready. I wanted to run the Boston Marathon. But to run the Boston Marathon, you had to qualify with a time. Okay? So I was training to get in the time for qualification. And I was running here in the Dallas White Rock Marathon. And I was really trucking along good. And I was going well and I was well trained. Mile 20. This knee said to this body... We ain't running another step. I mean, it was pitiful. And so there I was sitting on the side of the road. People going by me, all right? And I was rubbing my knee, talking to my knee. Because if that knee didn't function, guess what? This body wasn't going to run. And so I pleaded with the knee and I said, if you'll just get up and crawl or walk just for this last five miles, I'll never do this to you again. And then he said, you got a deal. But think about it. What would you think as you're going somewhere and there is a 60-year-old man sitting in the gutter talking to his knee? <laughs> you think there's something wrong with that guy there sitting in the gutter talking to his knee, you see? Um, when one member of the body is not functioning, the body hurts. And then it takes time for others to devote their time to encouraging them and to building them up. So Paul is encouraging us all to see how important it is for us to grow in our faith in Jesus to the point where we are not a hindrance to the body, but we are a help to the body. So that's the story so far that we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 4. But we turn over the page and we go into a different story when we go there to chapter 4 verse 17. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, the emptiness, there's nothing going on there that's of any value, and you've already recognized that. That's why you've turned away from it. So he says, I want you to remember that you, we no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of hearts, they have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. You did not so learn Christ. Notice that point there that he pops in there. You didn't learn that kind of living from Christ. In Christ, you learned a different kind of living. I want to just park that there and turn over to Colossians and chapter 3 and verse 1. And let's notice what Paul says to the Colossians, which is about the same time that he's writing Ephesians. Remember, there were four prison epistles, 
You've got Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so Colossians and Ephesians were written at the same time. Notice what Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 1. If then, and as I've mentioned before, that if is what we call a third, a first-class conditional sentence. That doesn't mean if, perhaps. It means since you have been raised with Christ. What's he talking about there? When were they raised with Christ? When they were baptized. Drop back to chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So notice he's tying back to baptism, which is a death, and it's a being born again and rising up to walk in newness of life. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 6, verse, all about verse 11. So come back to 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So if we've been baptized, what should we be doing? Seeking the things that are above. What does Seeking the things that are about. Talk about the word seek. What does that imply to you? Hmm? Sorry? Look for it, yes. Take effort, yeah. It doesn't mean sort of get up and wait to see what hits you. It's seek. You get after it. You start looking for it. All right? Seek the things that are above. Okay, what are those things that are above that we should seek? Where Christ is. All right. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds. That means glue your minds to this on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice what he's saying here. Since you've been raised from the dead and are leading this new life, set your mind on Christ, the things that are above where Christ is. Okay. Now, notice the next uh, verse, 4, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So right away, he's saying to these Gentiles in Colossae, now let me just remind you, Colossae is just down the road, uh, from Ephesus, not very far, okay? And so he's saying here now, there's some things that you need to kill in your life that are hanging over in your life from your past life. So notice he starts out, put to death what is earthly on you. And then in verse 12, having done that, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, have you heard those words brought together just recently? All right. Back up there, you remember, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 following, when you're seeking the, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, how do you do it? With lowliness, meekness, patience, suffering, those kind of things. So notice the similarity between Colossians and Ephesians here. So coming back now to Ephesians, to the chapter that we're looking over here as we turn the page. Now let me read it again. Now, this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, or 
as you used to do, right? in the futility of their minds. Give me one word that says you're going to have to change your mind and your lifestyle. And it begins with R, repentance, all right? You remember also Jesus said to the Jews, uh, Luke tells us this in chapter 13 and verse 3, unless you repent, you will in like manner perish. And repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And what Jesus was getting after the Jews about was that they had refused the kingdom that Jesus was preaching about. They want to go back to the old system. And Jesus said, you're going to have to change. right? Now, that's what's going on here in this passage that we're looking at here. Now, um, I'm, not, I'm not going to dig into all of these words here, but for the rest of the study through chapter 5, verse 2, and actually next week if we pick it up on that, all the way through chapter 5, when Paul is talking about the evil and the sinfulness and the licentiousness, uh, when he's talking about that, permeating through all of that is the concept or the problem of sexual sin. So this block of material is heavily loaded with the problems of sexual sin because these Christians were surrounded by that. I mean, you had the temple of Artemis up on the hill and the idea if you wanted fertility, if you want your children to be well, you go up as a male and you get a hold of a prostitute up there and you have sex with them. That was part of their culture. And right in, down in the middle of Ephesus, we saw that on the slides that we looked at, the pictures, there was what is considered the largest brothel in the ancient world, right in the middle of the city, okay, with a very fancy advert uh, pointing at where it is, you see. Um, so this, the world that they came from was a world that was permeated with sexual impropriety, that's a fancy word. Let me just give you the, the word that's, that is used behind all of this discussion is the Greek word porneia. Porneia is any kind of illicit sexual intercourse. Okay? Any kind of sexual illicit. That's the word porneia. Can you think of an English word? that permeates our society today? Pornography. pornography. What is pornography? It's writing and pictures about what? About sex, you see. And so although our world is different in many ways, in other ways, it's very similar. Now, hopefully, and I think I'm right in saying this, you didn't come from that world. Okay? Uh, or the world that's out there. But these folk did. They came from that kind of background. And so Paul is saying to them, if you're going to be a Christian and you're going to live in Christ with your life focused on Christ, then you have to get rid of this stuff. Over in Colossians, he said, you put it to death. Kill it. Don't have anything to do with it because it will corrupt you. Okay. What is one of the serious problems that young children face today. 
broken homes, divorce. And what lies behind most of the divorces that we see today? The very problem we're talking about here, see? People that cannot control their lives. Can you see the impact of that in the lives of our children and of our culture? It's very difficult today for us to turn on the television. How many of you like to watch television? Yeah, I like to watch television. Watch possibly too much. But anyway, um, isn't it difficult today to turn on your television and see something that is not sexual all the way through? And if it doesn't have sex in it, guess what? It doesn't sell. It doesn't show. That's the world that we're living in today, which tells us that we need to be careful, as these people were careful, so we need to be careful. So let's move on. just want you to see that as he... As he develops some of these words here, uh, they have that sexual background to them as we work through this. All right, pick up there with verse 19. They have become callous. What does that mean? Hardened. I mean, you can't talk to them. All right. They have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness. What is licentiousness? Yeah, it's bad, yeah. It means you have a license to do whatever you want to do. That's what the word means, licentiousness. You've got a license. You know, we got this guy uh, that just the other day took a rifle and shot people up and the rest of it. And uh, he had a background in Illinois. Uh, you remember he went and tried to get into the White House and the Secret Service uh, got a hold of him and arrested him. Uh, one of his claims was that I am a sovereign individual. That means I have no one that's over me and controls me. I might live in the United States, but I'm not under the laws of the United States. That's what a sovereign person believes that they are on their own and no one has the right to tell them what to do or to interfere with their life. That is what the word licentious means. I've got a license to do whatever I want to do. So that's what he's talking about here with licentiousness. They're greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. Now that word uncleanness there is a fascinating word. It's akatharsia. Now I know that excites you, akatharsia. Uh, uncleanness. But when you get in there and do some work in the dictionary about a catharsia, uh, which is translated here, uh, uncleanness, it's sexual uncleanness. That's what a catharsia means. And so they, were they sort of believed that they could do any kind of sexual act that they wanted to. That was okay. But notice the next verse. You did not so learn Christ. Christians don't live like that. But then notice how he gives them a little dig following that in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught about him as in truth is in Jesus. So he's sort of jolting in there. I'm assuming that you folk have heard about Jesus and that you were taught about Jesus and you didn't learn this kind of living from Jesus. Okay. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and, he re and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice, you need to put on this new life that's in the likeness of God and not in the likeness of the world out there that you left when you became a Christian. Now, there are a couple of passages I want you to look at there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, which also is, as we just noticed a few minutes ago, very similar. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices, and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? So, when did we put off the old nature and put on the new nature? At baptism, I want you to, don't, we're not going to take the time to read it now, but I want you just to go ahead and read again. I know you've read it many times. I want you to read Romans chapter 6 verse 1 all the way down through to about verse 14 when Paul talks about when you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ, you died to your old life, you're raised to walk in a new life. Don't allow the flesh to take over your life because you've been created in the image of God. That's Colossians chapter 3 that we're looking at there. There's another passage there I wanted to look at there. Uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice what he's saying here. Beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, thinking about the glory of God, setting your mind on those things that are above where Christ is. We are being changed into his likeness. From one degree of glory to another. Notice again that emphasis. This is a progressive thing. We grow in this. Not everyone is going to grow at the same rate. Which means those of us who are older. Is that, is that any of you? Okay. Those of us who are older. We're not talking about you folk on this side of the table down here. Because you're struggling with raising those children and all of those kind of things. And us folk over there, we'd done it two generations ago, and we did it right. And if you don't do it like we did it, guess what? We've got the problem. Because we live in a different world today. You know, one time I was asked by a group of men to teach a men's Bible class and to share with them some of my experience of how to raise sons, because I had three sons. Uh, and I said to him, you're talking to the wrong guy. Yeah, I raised three sons, and they are first-class young men. But I did it in South Africa, where they had rules and laws, and you were expected to behave those. If you went to school, and you didn't have the school uniform on, guess where you ended up? In the principal's office. And guess what he was going to do? Or guess what you were going to do? That's right. And you would get caned, not whacked. 
different world. You're not allowed to do that today in our culture. But nevertheless, where we raised our children, it was in a very strict culture, okay? different from what we've got here now. So it is very easy for us, if we're not careful, to look at what others are doing and judge them because they are not as successful as we were. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Colossians, uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed one degree at a time as we grow into this image. Putting it simply, Paul is just saying here, we've got to quit judging other people. Do you remember we, we ran into that just the other day in Luke, where Jesus says, judge not that ye be not judged. And the word judge not there is an interesting one because it is a perfect tense. All right. Now, per I know that excites you, doesn't it? That it was judge not is a perfect tense. Well, the perfect tense in Greek works like this. If you want to explain something that happened in the past, but is still present in the present, you put it in the perfect tense. If you wanted to describe something that was that happened in the past and it was just history, you put it in the pluperfect tense. See? So the perfect tense in Greek is very interesting. So when Jesus said, judge not, by putting that in the perfect tense, he's simply saying, quit judging one another. Don't get into the habit of judging one another. Because if you get into the habit of judging one another, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be judged the same way. And so again... This ties back into what we're talking about here. What I wanted you to see is this business of growing up in Christ is going to work differently in different people. Some people are going to get on board quickly and just grow quickly, possibly because of their background, possibly because they didn't have a problem with parents or didn't have a problem with a father or didn't have a problem with elders in the church or preachers in the church. So it, it was a lot easier for them to grow and change. But you know it doesn't always work that way. That sometimes our people, our children, our wives, husbands, have come out of backgrounds that are devastating. And it's difficult for them to change. It takes time. So what do we have to do about that? Sorry? Be patient. Be patient. And what else? Set them a good example. They need to see in us what we're wanting them to see in Christ. All right? That's a big one, isn't it? It's a tough one. But that's what Paul has been talking about here all the way through Ephesians. So let's move on a bit. Look at verse 22. Put off the old nature which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Well, 
we, we've studied that I don't know how many times uh, in various sermons and other indications. And, and it, Paul is not saying you can't get angry. Uh, Jesus got angry. Uh, he's not saying that. But it's again, don't allow anger to so consume your life that it destroys you to where it is a sinful thing. Because anger will destroy love if you're not careful. But we know that love can destroy anger if it's applied properly. So when he says here, be careful about your attitude towards other people. And when it comes down to anger, be careful. Because it can become sin. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may be able to give to those in need. A little sidelight that we don't necessarily uh, understand today in our culture. One of the worst things uh, in a Greek culture was someone who would not work for their living. And, and I didn't know how to say this. I, I, I didn't put it in writing, although I was tempted to. Quit bumming off other people. Now, that says something clearly. Is it okay for me to say that to you folk? You're not going to get upset about my coarse language. Well, I was so concerned about it. I, I got on the internet and tried to see how to define the word, and there was no adequate definition. And the answer came back is, don't be a loafer that loafs around and doesn't play your part in the responsibilities that you have. For the Greek, that was a serious issue. And Paul will write to the church in Thessalonica, and he will tell the church in Thessalonica, if you've got a brother there that won't work for a living, withdraw fellowship from him. Have nothing to do with him. Why? Because you couldn't bring reproach on the church more than being a loafer that won't work and support your family. Right? Remember back then, they didn't have social security and all other ways of supporting your family. So you were supposed to do it. And when you became a Christian, guess what? You're supposed to help the church do that as well too. But the point is, this business of not working with your hands was a serious issue for that culture back there. And so if you start telling people that you're a Christian and your life is transformed and you won't work with your hands and take care of your family, they're not going to pay any attention to you. So you can see why he stresses that as he works through here. Then look at verse 29. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying as fits the occasion that it may impart grace to those who hear. Three things about our speech, all right? It must fit the occasion, okay? It must minister grace to those that hear it. That means they can be encouraged by hearing it. Or it will edify people. So if you cannot say something that's encouraging and edifying someone, don't say it. Keep quiet. Because that's not going to improve your image of Christ in the community. One of the problems that we have 
here in Texas, I'm not going to talk about the other states because, you know, um, in Texas, we've got a lot of smart mouth people floating around, don't we? That always have got to come up with a smart aleck remark. And it pops out of our mouth before we've stopped to think about it. Was that edifying to that person? Were they encouraged by what I just said? Did it minister grace? Boy, you talk about getting into trouble with that. I got into trouble with that recently. Not too recently, but recently. (laughs) I had a prescription for June at the pharmacy. And I went in to see the pharmacist. It was a young lady. She was a Pakistani lady. And I tried to explain to her what was going on. And she kept on saying, well, bring me the bottle. Bring me the bottle. I wanted the bottle on it. And I said... You don't need the bottle. You've got it in your computer. You know when we got it. You know all about that. And she carried on. And eventually I got real teed off with her. And I said, can't you do your job properly? And turned around and walked out. Did I help her at all? Did I minister grace to her? Was that encouraging to her? That bothered me for two days. And eventually I had to go back to see that young lady. And she wasn't there. And so I asked them, when will she be there? They said, the next day. That's three days now I've had to put up with this. And I go in there to see this lady, beautiful young lady standing there, a Pakistani young lady, and she smiled when I walked up. And I said to her, I've got to apologize to you. I was really unkind. I did not speak nicely to you. And she said, you don't have to apologize to me. She destroyed me right there. I knew I had to apologize. She said, I'll tell you why. You remind me of my grandfather. (laughs) She didn't have to say that to me, you know. I mean, she could have left that out. But she said he was always kind. And I thought, wow, I got taught a serious lesson by an Islamic lady from Pakistan. So can you see how important it is for us to be careful how we speak to people and how easy it is for us when we're really uptight to say the wrong thing. Before we lived in McKinney, Allen, in this area, we lived in Abilene, Texas. And there's a sign as you get close to Abilene says, Abilene is a city of a five minute long delay in traffic, which means what? There ain't no cars there to worry about. So, I, you know, it didn't bother, bother to me or anything. Then we moved to Durango, Colorado, and three cars a day would go by our house there, you see. So I come down here to Dallas, and I'm like you. I'm driving down the road, and here comes this person in a car. Zips in front of me, doesn't signal, cuts me off, and the rest of it. With a cell phone in its ear. Did you get what I said there? <laughs> its ear, okay. And so what do I do? Or what did I used to do? I hit the horn, you know. And I'm now, and and there's somebody sitting next to me there that says, Oh, I expect you feel better now. (laughs) Ooh. It didn't take long to cure me of that habit. It doesn't happen anymore, okay? So, yeah. By not being careful, we can pop off. In various ways. And Paul is saying you need to be careful about that. All right. Uh, 
verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. What is malice? Sorry? Yeah, that could be part of malice. Evil intention. Okay, yeah, evil intentions. It, it sounds to me like that green, gooey some stuff, you know, that goes in a pond that hasn't been refreshed for a long time, and yuck, you don't want to have anything to do with that. That's what malice is. It's that which is really bad, that you don't want to have anything to do. It just discolors everything, malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice how he brings us back again to God in Christ in this. And we ran into those same words up at the beginning of chapter 4, how we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with ten, being tender-hearted and forgiving one another. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, I want to just do chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 here uh, to close out this thought. Therefore, be imitators of God as children, as beloved children, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So notice that our behavior, as we're forgiving one another, as we're trying to live in Christ and in God, Paul says that this is a sacrifice of love. A fragrant offering in their sacrifices. Do you remember the lady that poured, poured an ointment, very valuable ointment, on Jesus of myrrh? And they were upset because it was very costly. That was part of their culture, especially in Judaism, but all the others. When you offer something special, um, it needs to be special. It needs to be something that has meaning to it. All right? I found that out this last Christmas. For two Christmases past, I've asked June, she said, what do you want? I said, I want one of those colognes that uh, are really nice. And I said, it, it's, it comes in a bottle like of a man, okay, man's body. And it's a cologne. So she went and bought me cologne. It wasn't in a bottle that looked like a man. It was okay, you know. So this last year I decided I'm going to do this special. Oh, let me back off. Dear friends of mine in Abilene, uh, Dr. Tony Ash and his wife Barbara. Tony passed away just last month. They had married but never had any children, both professional lives, so they maintained a separate bank account. He had her his bank account and she had her bank account. And then they got married early on. They had the arrangement, look, look, you, Tony, pay for the house. And I, Barbara, will pay for the furniture. And you, Tony, if we eat out, will pay for the meals. And I will buy the groceries for the house. 
That's a pretty good deal, wasn't it? Guess how many days a week they ate out. <laughs> you could go look in their pantry. You couldn't find any food there if you tried to. Okay, but they worked it out. It worked out well for them. But they had another thing that was even better than that. They got tired of what would you like type of thing for your birthday. So they worked it out this way. And for Christmas, Tony would buy his own birthday present or Christmas present, what he wanted. And Barbara would buy her birthday present and Christmas present, what she wanted. So I decided I'm going to solve it this time. Okay? And uh, so without telling June what she was going to be giving me for Christmas, I went down to Macy's and I bought this bottle of stuff with this guy. And uh, I had got a couple of other things and I was in a hurry. And so I gave the lady my card, and she charged it up. And when it came back, I said, "Woo, did I buy that much? And when I got home, I checked out what I had paid for that bottle of cologne in that fancy bottle. Okay, So guess what kind of Christmas gift she gave me? A very precious and valuable one that smelled nice. All right? What I'm saying is... To get it right, I had to spend a lot of money for it. And so to give any kind of gift that has a fragrant smell to it as we give it to God, what is the implication behind that? It's going to cost. All right? It's not going to be cheap. I wonder how many times we try to give God a cheap gift. It doesn't cost us at all. One famous theologian spoke about the fact the problem with us most times is we like cheap grace. Grace that doesn't cost us much. That's what Paul is saying here at the close of this wonderful passage here. Therefore be imitators of God. How much did he give? How much did it cost? Cost his son, okay? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That wasn't cheap. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul is going to continue now in the next session. And I'm hoping this next session to go through chapter 5 and completely end of chapter 5.